All right, so we're back for episode two, talking about the Band of Brothers, diving through each episode in that 10-part series. Last time, we talked about Curry, episode one, mm-hmm. kind of leadership uh, examples and stories throughout that. And moving on today to Day of Days. So again, we got yeah. Sayer Dane. Join in, Sayer. Appreciate you being here, man. Hey, good to be here. I'm on late time, but this is, still, this is fun, you know, because I watched it this morning, just hanging out, sleeping and drinking coffee. And then, uh, yeah, it's fun to talk about. That's a good day at the lake. Yeah. So and, uh, if you think about D-Day real quick in real time, what day is today? It's June 8th. 8th. Yeah, the 8th. yeah, so D-Day was a couple days ago. We just coincident, you know, timing wise. One day, one day, I'd like to be over there for the anniversary. Um, mm. You see what they do like on the 50 and the 75 and it's, it's major events. And I think, man, I missed it. You know, I missed the 75 year, but the reality is the 78th year would be pretty cool. The 84th year would be pretty cool to be there on the anniversary. But that's something you got to do sooner rather than later. So you can see some of the people that are actually there. Yeah. Right? Well, Pee Wee, who I mentioned um, last episode, who turned 100, he jumped in at the 75th. He was on 60 minutes. Like they did a sort of, he's kind of one of the, he's like, yeah, he's kind of famous. Because he's, he's, there's another guy named, um, I think, Vince. He was with the 82nd. He's still alive. So there's not, I mean, they're few and far between, but he tanned up jump. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Um, so this episode called Day of Days, some of these are, you know, spoiler alert. The next episode is called Carantan. We know what that's going to be about, right? Battle in Carantan. Day of Days is like, what a perfect name for mm. D-Day, right? So this episode really, it's about a 24-hour stretch compared to episode one, which was like two and a half years. Right. This episode starts in the aircraft, heading over the English Channel, and it ends with Winter saying, I hope I can survive D plus one. I mean, they're going to sleep or catching a little rest before the end of the day. Yeah. My big takeaway from the episode is this is, this is a combat episode. Right. It's fighting every every time you turn. It's it's a fight. It's um, yeah. It's a it's cinematography is different too. Uh, just the way it's presented, the episode, the way it's presented. I mean, that's why it's such an excellent series. Again, aside from the storyline, uh, which is again is real, just how it is done, and you notice like the grays. It's kind of dim. Yeah. Aside from starting in the darkness, of course. I, at a random aside, there was a scene when they were preparing for the large battle in uh, Brecourt Manor, and they were running towards those guns. They were running through a garden. And I thought, I know they're messing around at the campus. I got it. But the way they did that coloring made their uniforms look so well camouflaged in that yeah. terrain. You know what I mean? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Compare that to the U.S. Army running around in ACUs for periods of time, right? And it's like not quite the same, but anyways, yeah, the cinematography is great in this one. I, you know, one thing that came to mind early on when they were in the planes and then as soon as they hit the ground, and this isn't that, this is unique, is what it, it's, this isn't that common. Those guys jumping on D-Day hadn't tasted combat yet. Their very first experience getting shot at was behind enemy lines during the morning of the largest invasion in history. That 
that was their first one. There was no left seat, right seat. They didn't get to sit in the outpost towers and, you know, hear what rounds sound like when they fly by. They didn't get to go on a patrol with an entire platoon and, and see what returning fire is like. They didn't even get to sit on a base and hear a gunfight. The first time was jumping into Normandy, turning the corner, and they're in the fight. With a lot of hype. A lot of hype. Um, the stories weren't great coming out of, you know, the fighting, you know, with the Germans. It's not like, it's not like the Americans are getting steamrolled by the Germans or the Americans are steamrolling the Germans, but it wasn't pleasant. Um, I'm sure, you know, because you're in your head, the anticipation, and you've been, they've been uh, barking at them, preparing and tell them about all the bad stuff that's about to happen, you know, because it's truth. You tell the truth. And so two and a half years of that sort of ominous dark cloud, and here we are. Which... And there was, there was respect for the Germans, too. I mean, we can get down into the weeds on who they right. were fighting, and was it the peak right. soldiers or some replacements, this and that. But there was a healthy respect for the Germans. This was not, um, we're going to walk all over them by any that, That's exactly what I mean. It's a dark cloud. It's ominous. It's foreboding. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's finally there. It's the game of games. Um, you know, and I was watching it, and of course... Because quickly to our, just wondering like how calm, because I remember myself being calm in a helicopter. And I think that that's weird. But then to your point, that was at the end of it. Kind of like we didn't do the air mobile nighttime operation until we had our healthy amount of battles under our belts. You know what I mean? Like, and that is what makes this so I think terrifying because also it's a new, (laughs) the paratrooper thing is a new thing on top of that too. So they're like, they're entering war in a newer form of combat, um, definitely new to them. And so the nerves that I think, I just couldn't imagine those nerves um, with all of those variables. There's just so many variables, the, the, the flak and the sky, all that sort of stuff. Out of your control, right? I mean, yeah. truly, until you hit the, you don't know if, if, if the aircraft gets hit with flak, which is the anti-aircraft fire that detonates in the air, right? For anybody who doesn't know, and it shoots shrapnel in a bunch of different directions to bring down aircraft. That has nothing to do with the paratroopers on board. Right. You can't do anything. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. If that shrapnel catches your aircraft, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you're the best of the best. You're going down. Which, and I think that would be also my point. Would, my point is, I think, I'm sure that by the time they did their later jumps, you know, like even the Market Garden, it was a different sort of calmness, probably like it is what it is type thing. You know what I mean? Like, but that the first one, it's, it is very stacked with the first that they were sort of doing like all of it, the, the mainland Europe, all of that sort of stuff, doing it at night. I mean, behind enemy lines. Um, it's quite incredible, but they, Hey, they trained for it though. There, there was no surprise at the end of the day, they were expected to be there. They did what they had to do. So to back it up a minute and kind of talk at the big historical level, there were around 13,000 paratroopers that jumped in on D-Day. And the, around midnight, between midnight and 1 a.m., roughly on June 6th, they took off from England on June 5th, jumped into Normandy um, in the first few hours of June 6th. Their task was to secure causeways or roads coming inland off the beaches So when the Americans, British and Canadians and some French forces landed on those beaches, they didn't have to fight their way inland quite as far. Mm -hmm. So kind of some breathing room. So, you know, that first wave coming off Utah Beach, 
is, is a great example, could, could keep going. And right. the, the Airborne would have secured St. Mary Glees, for instance, um, eventually Karen can. So you could just have this steady stream coming in from England because it wasn't a matter of D-Day wouldn't have been won by getting that first wave ashore. It was one with the 99% behind them mm-hmm. coming on mm-hmm. the continent, right? So the Airborne's job was secure those causeways briefly, repel any German attacks briefly, hold on for dear life until those people come off the beach. And something that came to mind while I was watching this was they knew that. They're talking about being a part of history and, and they knew what they were getting into. Nobody on the other side did. Think about that difference. There's so many battles throughout history where both sides see it coming and bam, maybe they don't both recognize what it's going to be, but this is like the defining moment of so many men's lives. And they're flying overhead with people who have no idea that this is about to happen. Just how vastly yeah. different that is, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's not taking prisoners, right? Because when we're talking, I mean, they're coming to kill the Germans in planes, jumping out of air. We're going to jump out of, we're going to jump out of these planes that you're shooting up. They're going down left and right. We're going to have this parachute contraption open off of our backs. Hopefully we land in a spot and then we're coming to kill you. And we're coming from the air. We're coming from the sea. We're going to drop bombs on you. We're going to shoot you from the uh, cannons on the boats, whatever those big guns are called um, that are out there. They are going to, we're coming to pulverize you. That is what was coming to those Germans. So we spend a lot of time on the American side, at least, maybe on the Western side, talking about the fear of these paratroopers falling down behind enemy lines, scattered to the wind. But you also have to appreciate which job is scarier, jumping in behind enemy lines, being God knows where. But what about the Germans that have people landing, killers, you know, warriors, landing everywhere, in every direction, in the middle of the night? I'm not sure which one of those, you know what I mean? I don't know which one of those I'd rather deal with. And you're trying your damnedest to shoot them all out of the sky, shoot all the planes out of the air, but they keep coming. And all over the place. So this was another random thought I had is even in Band of Brothers, they they do a they make it appear as though the planes were all pretty well at the same height coming in, right? They all had planned jump heights. And the idea is they all come in a wave. So by the time the first guys jump, they're far enough down to where the next plane goes right over the top. Mm-hmm. But in reality, between the flak, the lack of radio, they went radio silent for the bulk of the flight, no lights. The, um, the uh, pathfinders on the ground that jumped in first, some were successful, yeah. some weren't. Some right. deep remarked, others weren't. Um, sure. These guys came in everywhere. And I wonder, I don't think there's any way we'll know this piece of information, but how many paratroopers got hit by Allied aircraft as they were coming down? Because it was chaos oh. during those planes. We don't see that. Correct. There's not a way to tally that even, right? But... If you look at 13,000 coming out of the sky with pilots veering in every direction and flak hitting everything, like, you know what happened. And that's just like this added little nasty piece, sad piece of war, maybe, that. There are so many heroic deeds that happened that we just don't know what happened because they're dead. Or nobody told the story, too. I mean, think of how many people were involved on those days. And this is any war. I mean, something can Something can happen that is, in a way, magnificent, but it's momentary and fleeting. Who knows? 
Who knows? The decisions the pilots made, the decisions the jumpmasters made when planes were getting shot up and going down, and, and, and you are lost. It's split-second decisions. Um, and it's life and death. And decisions were made. And actions, you know, consequences happen. So I'm going to use that as an appeal to everybody, not even, not even veterans, but when you start digging into military history, you end up finding accounts from somebody. It's surprising what ends up being like the most important source on a battle. And mm. like, here we are, it turns mm. out it's, it's easy company of, of the 506, the 101st airborne for whatever. I mean, they're an incredible unit, but there were also a lot of other awesome, awesome, awesome units in the war, but because of the way they documented, maybe remember, maybe story told, um, and then people writing books about their experiences. Right. But, when you look at other military history events, they'll randomly take a journal that a private kept in the trenches at Verdun. And that's the thing that explains the experience, explains the yeah. experience, explains what they went through. So that's my appeal to everybody. That's to it. Document. Sorry. You never know. Say right. your, your journals from Kandahar might in, in 50 years be the definitive story of what conditions were like in Southern Afghanistan, right? You don't know. Well, that kind of motivates me to do the podcast stuff or TikTok stuff, because um, it's awkward, you know, you don't want to brag or whatever, um, but, then, but then you don't want, I don't want it to get lost, and it's not about me, but then when you know that other people did some really heroic deeds, um, at least the benefit of the technological age is it's out there, and it's like, it's out there, at least it's recorded, and if maybe someone, some historian, because the Tal- you know, the Taliban are still there 50 years from now or whatever. And, uh, you know, we read uh, The Bear Went Over the Mountain, Soviets Lessons Learned. <laughs> um, who knows? Or just from a historical context, I don't know. But it's just out there. So it's like, because we are forgetting, it's been a decade. And um, I'm glad the Easy Company told the story. And that helped motivate, like we talked on the first episode, them telling the story, we became motivated and inspired by it, not intimidated not scared necessarily of course we were but like there there was an inspiration that we had at that age um to one and you know idolize them like you would michael jordan or something i mean that's kind of how i i viewed it so to get back to the jump here these guys are scattered all over the place and they do a good job of showing that because as soon as they hit the ground bam you got 101st and 82nd guys teamed up 82nd was much closer to landing on their objective. They were the second group in. So as a whole, the 101st came in and then after like 30, 45 minutes, it wasn't much later, 82nd came in and just were a little more concentrated in their drops. But 101st was all over the place. I couldn't help but think of that feeling of, or think of what that feeling might be. I've never experienced this, but you come down, you're in enemy territory in any direction. It's dark. You don't know where you are. And you have no idea who survived, like none. You could be the only person that survived from, you have no idea, right? I mean, it's, it's days afterwards before they find out their buddy was killed or their commander's not around, or it's just that amount of uncertainty is, is hard to grasp. Or where the Germans are, how many of them are there? Is there going to be more of them coming by? Where's my gun? Where's my map? Not everybody knows where they are on the map. I mean, that's kind of an officer job. I doubt the lower enlisted guys had any clue. There's no time for that, right? Everyone has a different role. Not everybody needs to know exactly pinpoint where they are on the map. We should have general ideas, of course, and landmarks. 
but like grid coordinates, no. And that would be, that would be crappy, especially if you don't see anybody that, you know, you just don't see anybody. And this is something we'll probably spend more time on in follow on episodes, but the terrain in Normandy is there's a handful of different words and, and I probably use them interchangeably when I shouldn't, but bocage, hedgerow areas, right? Those hedgerows could be 10 feet tall and it's not just bushes. When I hear hedgerows, I think of stuff that people have out in their landscaping. It's mounds of dirt that have been compacted over hundreds of years. I mean, they stop tank rounds, let alone bullets. Um, and there were only certain, and that's what they used to separate these fields because it was a relatively agricultural type region. And it was like a maze. I mean, you know, as, as an example, think of the fields in Kandahar, right? It's a maze. It's not a patchwork like you might see in the Midwest, in the United States. And it's flat. So it's not like you can even, you know, let me get up on top of that hill or look for this landmark in the distance. There would have been very few to actually see from the ground. And if you're not careful, you're behind one of those hedgerows, you can't see anything 10 feet in a given direction. So trying to find direction, like, got some sympathy for those guys. That would have been incredibly difficult. That is a good point for those that haven't done it. Navigating on flat terrain is very difficult because it's very hard to get grounding where you are on the map when there's like roads and intersections, but some of it's not labeled. Um, I doubt every map, I doubt every little dirt road is late, especially then on the map. So it's like, it's really confusing. Cause then you're like, well, maybe this, it, it looks just like it. It's maybe it's this one. And it goes left instead of right. <laughs> and, um, and, and war is a confidence game. And so is land navigation. So if you're not having the confidence, it's, it's a slippery slope, I would think. So let's jump forward a little bit. They're on the ground. Um, they've started to, you know, again, I, I don't know that I would say that Lieutenant Winters, Dick Winters is the main character, but they're certainly following him a lot at this point in this episode. Mm-hmm. He's on the ground. He links up with some guys, takes charge, um, even without a weapon. And eventually they spot a German patrol coming their way. And they set up a little ambush. The Germans are on horseback, um, something that I think gets overlooked a lot in the Second World War is the German military was um, surprisingly reliant on horses. We think of panzers and motorcycles and all that stuff, but especially here in France, in Normandy, those were called static divisions, as in they didn't have transportation. So there was a lot of horse movement, a lot of horsepower being used. Um, So anyways, it's kind of a scene out of the First World War, out of the Civil War, right? Horses coming up. And they set up their ambush. Winter sets up the ambush pretty quick. Um, and says, wait for my command. And then before he says, fire, was it Sergeant Garnier? Garnier? Sergeant Garnier? He was Sergeant, yeah. Sergeant opens fire, steps out in the middle, and just starts shooting. Winters gets test, tested, like, right away. Like, that is, that is shoving in his face right out the gate. That's tough. I think... When I watched it the first time as a teenager, it would have been whatever. But rewatching it now, it's really shocking. Uh, it's shocking because it's really direct defiance right out the gate. The first time. That's the very first time he could disobey a direct order in combat. He does, right? Mm-hmm. And he's a known sort of, seems like a known sort of problem child, maybe attitude issues, but... But one of the care, uh, uh, you know, 
you know a lot of these soldiers, I'm sure there's all you got them that have, uh, but they can walk the walk. So they talk a lot, but they also able to walk. They can pull their, they pull their weight and then some actually. So they're real tricky. You can't micromanage them in any way because they're very confident. Um, but they're also stubborn. And he's, uh, Garnier really seemed to fit that category. Um, and because you want to use them, their superpower too. <laughs> and it's just tricky leadership because he even mutters when he walks away. I mean, it's just like, it's, well, you know, especially watching it again, it's just like, man. And for winners to have to deal, he, he's got to, let's just think about winners for a second. He is lost, maybe. <laughs> um, he's not where he's supposed to be. Whether he's lost or not is a different way of phrasing it. He doesn't have a weapon or didn't. Uh, people are dying. It is a cluster fuck. Um, and now, and, and he's trying to kill Germans. Like the actual mission itself is just barely even getting started. They're like trying to do a rally check. Um, so he's dealing with all that stuff. And now he's got to deal with an NCO directly disobeying his order. That's tough. You know, the hardest part for me with that in that situation, but it worked. Right? He disobeyed the order, but got the job done. So that to me is where it becomes even more challenging. I mean, think about how, you know, take the life and death situation of this example out of it. But if somebody disobeys that guidance and it doesn't work, it's pretty easy to say like, hey, listen, <laughs> we had a way to do this or we had a plan if you would have, you know, but in this case, it worked, got job done. I mean, it, at least as it's portrayed in the show, all of the enemy soldiers are killed. No Americans were even wounded and they were able to carry on with their objective. That is tough, man. It's like, oh, you want me to listen to you, but I just got it done. So what's the problem? It, that goes back to walking the walk and then some. It's a slippery slope. You know, that, and that's why you have to appreciate the guys doing it. At the end of the day, Winters is not a trigger puller. He's not with a Thompson that he gets to shoot from his hip. And that's his, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not his role. It's not his role. And so, again, there's that fine line of judgment. The thing that I thought was helpful with that piece was, I think it was the next scene. It was at least very shortly thereafter. It was Joe Toy when Garnier was complaining and saying he didn't even shoot, right? And forgetting that he didn't have a weapon, that Winters didn't have a weapon. He says he didn't even shoot. And Joe Toy pushed back and said, he just wanted you to wait for his order. To me, that's how, you know, that's the powerful piece here. If you can get another soldier to step in or another person to step in and say, you should have been listening because of this. Like put us all at risk. I would have done that. Um, because that one-on-one you should have done what I said. It worked anyways. Like, I don't know that you're gonna make a lot of progress there, but somebody else taking that on and listen, man, this is all he asked of you. That was powerful, but that takes a lot of work to get there. Right. There's a reason um, why I said it at that point. Well, and that, that Hey, Ben, that, that goes back to the brotherhood and then um, knowing how to talk each other down and um, you know, the heat of the moment, it, it is heat of the moment. It is life or death. You know, and there are times where you're just like, it's so tricky. <laughs> it's so tricky to be in those type of situations. But um, laws like that, too, with mediation, by the way, it's like you can have two adverse parties and they double down. And you can have the attorneys telling them the same thing and they just won't listen to their attorney. And that's what you get a mediator for. The, t- the mediator a lot of times is telling the parties themselves very similar information to what their attorneys are already telling them. Really? It's just good to have that. 
other person to nudge him and just a different perspective uh, thought in the ear, even if it's not even, it's the same perspective, but that's what toy was. Cause he also, and you know, good media has good reputation. Toy obviously was his best buddy. Um, he's going to probably listen to that more than he is some officer at the end of the day yeah. to come and go. So I've got a random comparison or example from Afghanistan. If you want to hear. I don't know if you'll remember this. All right. So we're at housing Madad, which was a base in Southern Afghanistan where we spent our first, um, saying this to the audience. So Sayer and I were there together. So I'm not telling Sayer uh, about the base he lived at, but um, how's he been to Southern Afghanistan, Kandahar? And we, we'd only been there a little while. So the Afghans that were there were just getting used to us. This is before the new unit came in, right? So we had the old Afghans that, I don't know, there's yeah. some swap there, right? And one day I remember there was some sort of contact south, just one of the normal days where they'd shoot at us from south of the road. And before you knew it, you started hearing mortars. The Afghans just outside our headquarters were hanging mortars, 82 millimeters or whatever. The guy would hang around, fire the mortar. Then he would run up to the wall, look over the wall, wait to see where it hit, and then run back, make an adjustment, drop another mortar, run back to the wall. It was like, you know, 50 feet or something, but he was the spotter. He was doing everything himself. And we had to sprint out there and say, stop, 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 stop. Because as soon as contact kicked off, we started calling in air support to actually reduce the problem, right? To actually take care of it, as opposed to kind of sling some mortar rounds out into some, some grape fields. But his viewpoint was, I'm dealing with it. You guys are just sitting over there. And that was his experience to date was the other unit wasn't, um, wasn't working as closely. And it was going to take us a long time to kind of build that rapport and build that trust. But it was the idea of like, but what I'm doing works. So what are, I don't need to listen to you. I've got this figured out. And it took a long time to kind of build that trust to say, hey, when you do that, the aircraft stop. Because they call in and say, there's mortars impacting everywhere. We can't come in. And we're saying, no, there's not. And then lo and behold, there's an Afghan slinging rounds outside our door. So it took a while to build that trust that we're trying to get at here with winners, where it was, if I just give the Americans a minute, maybe they can start this process right but anyways that came to mind and yeah well i was gonna say yeah i mean that goes back to the uh confidence i was talking about decision making because especially like let's say those afghans were under resourced understaffed and they're getting killed a lot so they had to just do something um they weren't expecting nato coming at them um the way the way when we did it and it's like, and that's what I'm saying. It's like hard to say if that guy's wrong because what is he, the, the mortar hanger? What's he doing? Violence of action. He's getting yeah. shot at. I'm going to do something about it. Even if I miss, at least they know I'm not to be trifled with. And within seconds of you shooting me, I'm lobbing mortars right back at you. Now, I'm, I, I'm, I know I'm not going to pin you down exactly, but um, one of these days I'll get you. So <laughs> violence of action, actually, maybe that's the lesson here. Violence and of action. Long, and how long are you willing to give the person the opportunity to prove themselves before, you know what I mean? Like, well, and see, and I didn't take it as that, right. I took it as Garnier stubbornness Yeah. as he just didn't want to wait at all. And he was almost proven a point. I think it was sort of the alpha thing almost. I mean, that's kind of how I take it. However, I could easily see him set, thinking in his mind, they're going to get away. They're going to get away. If we don't do it now, it'll be too late. 
And so I got to pull, I got to squeeze the trigger. It, we, that's one of those things. Let me back very hard to know. To talk about why that's important though. Um, and, and interested in your take on this too, Sayer. Like it wasn't just the winters was waiting for like the perfect time or wanted to have that control. If you watch the, the, the clip in the, in the movie, assuming that it's relatively accurate, it's not clear how many German soldiers are in that little patrol. Could be six, could be 60. There could be any number of things coming around that corner. If there's six, if there's 60 Germans coming in that patrol, those guys aren't opening fire. They're right. going in the other direction. They're not kicking off that fight. And when Garnier right. opens fire, it looks to me like that judgment hasn't been made yet. It's not clear yet if this is a fight they're going to take on. And that's exa- I think that's the point right there. Because I, when I'm watching, I have the base presumption that Winner said in a non-ego way to wait. There was a reason. <laughs> you know, I just got that presumption. I don't know what it was, but my presumption is listen. Uh, however, we don't know. Like you said, Garnier, though, he was kind of right up there. He was a trigger puller. He is the E5 that's aggressive as hell. But you want the pit bull, if anybody, to be behind the gun in the situation in Normandy. It's a guy like Garnier, by the way. Um, and maybe he did peer and see that it was just a group of three of them on horseback. And he says, fuck them and gets them. And that's it. And he, cause he has a clear line of sight. He, he can see he, he's He can kill all three of them probably with his Thompson. And he makes that judgment call and LT's got to back him up no matter what, cause we're here and we're doing it. I've waited too long for this. There's a part of that, I think, but we weren't there. Anything else on that incident before we jump into kind of the main battle of the episode? No, because I, th- I say we keep going. We're going to see more violence of action, too, and without hesitation and moving forward. Yeah, so that's kind of the way I would describe uh, the fight at Brecourt Manor. This is still an area that you can go kind of tour in Normandy. Um, mm-hmm. It's marked off on the map. You can look at it on Google Earth and kind of see the layout of what it would have been. It's pretty clear where things would have been. But uh, essentially, Winters and, and they, they kind of congregate back in a battalion area, as many people as they can, and they get tagged to go um, assault and try to take this, I'll call it a platoon. I don't know if they actually called it a battery, but four guns, 105 millimeter howitzers that were hitting the beaches would have been at that range, probably Utah. I don't think they would have been ranging Omaha. But either way, they're laying down um, artillery fire to the forces that are starting to land. Those guys started to come ashore at six. So the paratroopers who've been fighting for six hours, now the beach landings are happening and they've got another, whatever, 12 hours of fighting ahead of them, right? So Winters grabs this small crew and takes off to Brecourt Manor to assault what ends up being, I think the estimate is around 60. 60 Germans? That about right, yeah. What I don't know is, is this a battalion mission or is this a company mission? Because we know they linked up, and he's got a ragtag group. He's got an 82nd guy. He's got that Alpha Company RTO guy. Do you know that by chance? I mean, because they don't really go into it in the movie either. I remember um, them saying, can Easy Company handle this? Okay. Which makes me think company mission. Um, but love attachments long, that you found. <laughs> plus the random attachments. I love that part, right? Like, you got room, like, come on. <laughs> 82nd, we, whatever, man. We've been in combat six hours. Let's go. Um, At least you got a gun. But later, there are more people from the battalion. I think Lieutenant Spears shows up right from, what is he, yeah. Delta Company, maybe? Um, dog. Dog Company. So I think it's a, a company mission, but there's clearly enough tie-in with battalion to where there's some sort of reinforcements eventually. Um, yeah, but it's an awesome scene. 
one after the other after the other. They just take these guns down. The thing that stood out to me was violence of action and decisiveness. Holy cow. I know it's a movie. I know it's a show and you can afford to go back and do these takes, but just how quickly winter's just down. You right, you left, you go with me forward. And then the next, just one after the other, after the other, they just made it look so smooth. And I thought that was really impressive. Battle drills, battle drills, battle drills, battle drills. Because it's like, that's what they were doing in England, by the way. The stuff that um, Sobel got fired about was all related to this. It has nothing to do with your PT score and how fast you run. Um, to break it down, let's start off with what, let's start off, by the way, real quick, even before the Garnier shooting, when um, just was, when uh, Winters landed with that Alpha Company guy. What's the first thing he says? Follow me. There you go. Goes. Then they, then they, oh, get back down, machine gun. That was when they first landed, remember? Okay, but back that up real quick. Um, and then we hear that a lot here. Follow me. Winters goes, picks up, and goes. Follow me. And what does, if you break it down, what are they doing? They are supporting by fire, which is distraction this way, one-on-one with the other machine gun nest, machine on machine, machine gun on machine gun. Not even trying to kill them necessarily, just keep their attention. While Compton taking the assault element, he said the infilating fire, that's from the flank. So now you got the head on stuff. Now you can start going this way and they're lobbing grenades. They're wiping out bunkers. They've been wiping out bunkers for two years. And it's the not thinking part. That's the beauty of it. That's the art and the science all coming to fruition. Where it, I'm not going to say programming, but there's just no thinking about it. It's, it's the same thing as I think a wide receiver running a route or whatever. They're, just, they, they're not even thinking about the juking and jiving they're doing to get by the cornerback because they've already got it all in their head of where they need to be and where they need to go. And the quarterback's already got a mental image too, of where the ball's going to go and where that receiver is expected to be. Um, they've played it out, hopefully under even worse scenarios, you know, I mean, as best as possible doing these uncomfortable sort of tasks. And, you know, you said it's a movie and all that, but again, it's all real. The, the, and the real, the one thing I was talking about, like the book that they don't, it's so cool reading it in the book was Compton for one was an all American catcher from UCLA. And there's a part in the book when they're doing this, you know, where they're throwing the grenades and Germans are, Oh crap, getting up and trying to get away. There's one part where, and I think it's three Germans are running away. They, they uh, Compton and his assault team just took, um, got the foothold into the bunker, rooted out the Germans, killed the ones there. And then three guys are running away. And it's a distance from, they're about the distance that said from home plate, second base. And he takes a grenade. You know, they teach you grenades. You kind of lean and you lob it. Well, All-American baseball player pulls it and just spikes it and hits the guy in the back of the head in the middle and gets both of them. And there's a point where he throws it and he just, he just beelines the grenade and he gets a guy. Yeah. But it's only one guy and he falls down real quick. So it's like, that's one of the things in the book, though. It's totally articulated like that. It's real badass. But they even got him pegging a guy with a grenade, though, which I, you know, because I was looking for it. I remember when I was watching the movie in that scene. You know, there's things like that in these movies. It's funny how this, this shifts, right? There's sometimes we watch movies and we say that's unrealistic. Um, right. But there's so many things in history where the, the actual events seem so unrealistic that they end up not showing them in movies. That makes sense. Like what you just described, if that was in the series, 
it'd be out of character because so much of the series is, is, um, seems so realistic. So if they, you know, what you just described would have been like, nah, but in reality, they dumbed it down. Right? Joe Toy in the two hangar date situation. That looked more clumsy than I bet it really was. I mean, the fact that he almost got blown up by two light, uh, two hand grenades like that, who are really loud. I mean, hand grenades are pretty frightening when you hear them go off in real life, you know. <laughs> um, that's real. Again, how do you make that up? Because if you were to put that in a movie, it'd be like, okay, once I get it, he got lucky. But the second time, that's just yeah. a dramatic effect. No, that is real life. So one thing I want to bring up with, uh, with that assault is kind of this, interesting piece of leadership especially in the military or i think it's maybe highlighted in the military but you know you kept saying follow me follow me and he's out front and what he did during this assault was he said you know you're the base fire you're the base fire i'm the assault which sounds like the most dangerous right the most exposed the one out front and in this case i think probably was um that's not always the place to be though and it's not a matter of cowardice or whatever it might be. I mean, think about, maybe this is a good example, maybe it's not, but think about an offensive coordinator in the NFL. They're not on the field. They're set up real high where they can look and see the entire picture so they can call the plays correctly. It's a different experience than the quarterback. They have a different point of view. There's a time where, as the leader, it makes more sense to not be in that assault element because you might lose focus of the overall objective and sit back in a support by fire. And it's not wrong. If you're doing it for the right reasons, and it makes sense for that specific mission or raid or whatever it might be. That's kind of to your point, getting back into the art of, and it's not just military, we're using the military example here, but there's not one spot for the leader. It changes based on the circumstance and what, where, where they're needed at that time. What do we call that? Command and control. Where can he most maintain command and control, which comes down to communication left and right where my adjacent units at we got friendly fire issues probably all over the place and what's funny though here's the thing though um it is i still view big picture wise he wasn't assault compton was compton was the assault element in my book because compton and his team it was him popeye there's like a three-man team where they're lobbing the grenades and they're actually killing the germans and getting the foothold and then Winters is – so he's like – he's maneuvering with the assault element. But to your point, it's to get command and control to make sure that – what's the mission, by the way? Blow up the guns. And that is the mission, and that's – he's got to be by the guns. You know, not to – again, that's a fine line between management and micromanagement, but that's the mission. You're going to get eyes on on that. And then just keep leapfrogging. I think it's the kind of thing that's easy to – you know, leaders lead, leaders up front, first out the door, first out the aircraft, whatever it might be. And it's, to me, it's interesting when you get down into the weeds to recognize there's times, you know, we'll use this as an example, right? So let's say Winters just needed four trigger pull, trigger pullers up front to assault, overrun the, whatever it might be. It's not bad. It, in fact, it is bad leadership if he takes the place of a rifleman and loses the ability to control, you know, the shifting fire on either, on either side, right? That is not good leadership because right. he's up front. It's bad because he's losing control of the element he's in charge of. His job is everybody, not just that assault element. So it's this piece of leadership to me that's always interesting where I think it's so 
easy to just say, be up front, be there, be where it's hardest, maybe every single time. Um, but there's a bigger picture to keep in mind always. It's, it is such a fine line and, and it's, um, you're, uh, I don't want to say all, is this an officer or NCO thing? I don't know. Maybe it is an officer thing. It's managing your lethality properly. So a private manages lethality as a rifleman with just a rifle. Maybe someone gets a 203. That's a team leader to manage that lethality that manages the 203 type stuff. It's all about the firepower. And, a, and, a, and an officer's lethality is not individual weapon systems. It's, it's, it's groups and collections of people. And then the combined lethality with another person doing the same thing with their collection of people's um, uh, reigning death and destruction, essentially, because that, at the end of the day, is the mission here. But I do think there's something to be said for early on being putting yourself in that situation, right? Winters at this point is still proving himself to his guys. Yeah. Not necessarily to show bravery, but um, willingness to accept the same risk he's asking of them. He hasn't really had that opportunity with these guys yet, other than yeah. training. And, and in my mind, you can only get to a certain point with training. There's some of this stuff that um, like Winters shows at Brecourt Manor, like, that's going to stick with those guys might've been, I mean, it might've been something he was considering as he, as he stepped up there. It's courage, which is the acknowledgement and appreciation of fear, but continuing to move forward. Because if you walk across a field from point A to point B, and then someone tells you once you get to B that, did you know you just, that's a whole minefield. You just walked over 50 miles. That's not courage in the sense that someone who does it like knowing that could also be stupid too, by the way, and not courage, right? It, it kind of depends on the context. And that goes back to the art of it. That goes back to the nuance. I don't know. Tactics, hey, I, platoon leader has four tracks. Um, doctrine, I guess. There was no much doctrine because we were making this up. It wasn't really Cold War. It wasn't GWAT. Who knows what it was? But second vehicle was the C2 vehicle, command and control, right? Back to managing the four trucks properly, which had machine guns and all sorts of stuff. I felt weird going to second. It was like, and I didn't know what I was going to do until nobody told me. It's not like anybody said you will go first or second. Company commander doesn't say that. It, my platoon sergeant didn't even say it. It was kind of my choice and it's awkward. And I, I wish someone would have told me where to go and I didn't have to make that decision because the issue was there's lots of IEDs. And then it felt weird for me putting someone else up front when they walk up front already. So anyway, I drove up front. I drove in the first vehicle, but in a way, that's also stupid because what if what if my vehicle did get you know hit first? Because that's probably what's going to happen on a pressure plate at least under the ground one, which is we didn't really have the timing command that stuff. But anyway, um, now the PL's out, right? And then it's like that's a bad thing too. So I, you know, again, I don't know what the right answer is on either of those. There there is no right answer. I think just you just got to make a decision and go with it. So I'm going to tie this back into the last episode when we talked about Sobel's lack of flexibility, or at least what it looked like, kind of showing how he was very rigid. And these are the rules. I told you these are, this has to be how it's done. I think what you're seeing here at Brecourt Manor is flexibility. Winters yeah. doesn't have a company. He doesn't even have a platoon. I mean, keep in mind, at this point, he's still a platoon leader, right? But part of his element is another officer. I mean, it is just a ragtag group from within the platoon and company. Um, that he puts together to complete the objective and he figures it out on the fly. 
I don't know how much time they had to research maps, overhead imagery. Nah, right? Like who knows how much time they had to put this together. It was pretty much on the fly. There's flexibility. The fact that it turned out as well as it did is a testament to that. So we can, with any of these battles in history, can nitpick this and that. Maybe he should have done that, this and the other, but super impressive to make the decisions he did, be where he was, make those calls, put the plan together. And now it's a case study in assaulting a position. Battle drills. Because if they train for two and a half years on specifically doing, let's say, knocking out each platoon will knock out six German 155s that will have six to eight Germans at approximately uh, within a 15 min, uh, meter radius. And they drilled it identically to this model. It's just they're going to get stuck on that. Instead, they learn knock out a bunker. And, and it, it could be a German. They don't know where they could have landed. They could have done that same thing on German pillboxes, okay, that you have to knock out with amphib- amphibious assaults. They've got these pillboxes everywhere. There were other, I'm sure 82nd, the Band of Brothers happened in the 82nd. You know, we don't know those stories. They jumped there, okay? They were doing the same stuff. Um, they were knocking out pillboxes, I'm sure. So, and it's the same exact concept. And, and the big picture would work like this. If I got blown up in the first truck, guess what? I would hope that someone in the platoon would figure it out. PL's gone. We're going to just keep going. If winners went down, Compton's going to step up. And if Compton either gets killed or freezes, not able to because he's scared or whatever, Garnier probably would have said, let's go follow me. And then they would have linked up with Spears eventually, and they would have realized, okay, he's the next officer on the ground. Spears, where do we go? Hey, I want you taking off this. Follow me. And then they're going. You know, it's like everybody's able to step up. Um, And then everybody has a healthy appreciation, and I'm here to die just like you are. One of the things that I love when studying D-Day, this is, you know, when people ask, if there's one conflict I could study, it'd be World War II. I got an easy answer one day, one event, it's, it's D-Day because there's so many different aspects to it, right? There's a little bit of everything. Um, but the thing that I love about studying D-Day is it's so much of that. None of these right. plans came together, but success over and over and over and over again is a random NCO that says, I'm on the wrong beach. There's supposed to be a pillbox there. Instead, there's three there. And he picks up an anti-tank rifle and goes. And like, what? you know, that over and over that, that being flexible, being able to just pick up and, Hey, my objective was over here. I'm not there. Teddy Roosevelt jr. Perfect. On Omaha beach, right. They land almost a mile off their objective. They figure out where they are. Well, you're going to move back up the beach under fire. And he says, Nope, we're going to start the war right here. This is the hand we're dealt. We're going to play the flexibility, the, the, you know, the ingenuity to take what you have and just go. I love it. It's, it's down at the low. I mean, you see privates doing that on D-Day. It's awesome. I mean, it's just, it's one of the things I love about it. Exactly. I love it. Violence of action. It's the art. I didn't appreciate it until probably just recently, as I'm starting to reflect more and more, because I didn't think about most things. When they say art of war, it's the most creative endeavor that you could think of of the ultimate chess game, you know, the ultimate game. No, I don't want to say game, but it's like the human mind against the human mind, not for dollars, but for lives. And so it's just the highest of stakes and the creativity and the fact that at the end of the day, you're still winging it. And I struggle with that as a civilian in a white collar, because I feel like there are more rules that I have to follow. They're more strict. 
and their consequences are less dire. And so I really, I definitely struggle with that. And I think they struggle with that uh, recognition because they think that if anyone comes from the, uh, well, we're big time rule followers, you know, very strict and all of that stuff. But this sort of freedom of expression at the highest of consequence is, um, well, it's like a freedom like no other. I'm going to, keep that train of thought and move it to the beaches a little off uh, the actual D-Day or the actual uh, Band of Brothers series, but it just kind of grounds me, if you will, to think about a soldier, say the 1st Infantry Division that comes ashore on Omaha Beach. They studied those sand tables too. They, they practiced. You come off and sure. move to your left, and here's this causeway on your right, and, and here's what to look for. They also expected that all the German defenses would be pretty well pummeled. There shouldn't be much. Not, I mean, you're going to find some resistance, but not much. That Omaha Beach should be pretty well taken care of when you get there. Also, those tanks. Don't worry. We're putting 30 tanks ashore before you get there. So any remaining Germans, they'll take care of them. So imagine the leaders or private or anybody that comes ashore on Omaha Beach in the first wave. Tanks aren't there. The German defenses look like they haven't been touched because, for the most part, they hadn't been touched. You landed in the wrong sector of beach. What are you going to do? Like, can you complain about it? This isn't fair. This isn't what I was, I was not told that this is how it was going to be. Or this isn't right. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Like, seriously, like, it's go time. I'm sorry. It sucks. And I don't mean that to. There's uh, no thinking. Yeah. I I don't mean that to to downplay what those guys did. But the idea of like, this is now your situation. There's, it makes me put things in perspective today when it's. I mean, if, if I'm be- yesterday, we had a doctor's appointment for our daughter in Nashville early. We got up early, got in the car. Um, and then as we were pulling out of the driveway, they said, postpone till tomorrow. And I thought like, oh, my whole day is off now, right? Because I had this. And then what am I going to yeah. do? The whole day is wasted at 630 in the morning. I said the whole day was wasted because they, uh, the appointment was shifted. And then when I think back to real change in the plans, right? Um, puts in perspective we just came down to we're down at north lake tennessee right now 75 south that's a big interstate and just south of lexington we like to stop you know i'm heading down with my family three kids and 75 north the other side backed up backed up backed up backed up almost 10 miles worth well um you know and and people get mad about that right because you got places to be you know thankfully i think that we're, we're trying to be more cognizant of all that type of stuff you know and i think learning um you just wonder like you have to i you know it sucks to have to be late to something you want to go to but why are we stopped like this something is bad you know and we just looked six people died it was a mom and like five kids died in a minivan or whatever and it was a we're talking a saturday right and we're talking like three to like 12 or something years of age maybe 13 or something and the mom and it's because someone else, some other person drove on the other side of the highway on 75. I mean, it's like speed limit, yeah. 70 miles an hour. Um, and so it's just, and I told my kids what I said, when we drove by, I saw the vehicle. I said, you know, I think somebody died here. I, I don't think that this is just a traffic vendor. I think somebody died. And then, then I, you know, I waited for the full report and I told them all because it's like, it's, it was just a Saturday for all of us that day. It was just a Saturday and you just don't know. And um, all of this puts it in perspective, 
I think all of it does. So I'm going to bring it back into the uh, back into the series. A couple final points here as we kind of kind of near the end, but um, they make it back from the assault. I couldn't help but wonder the feeling when they saw those tanks rolling down the street. Mm. That means they linked up with the landing force. That wasn't guaranteed. Today we look at history and we know the one, two, three, how it all plays out. But right. there was a chance every one of these paratroopers, I've had people ask me, what was the plan to get them out if the landings failed? There wasn't. You can't do that. How are you going to get 13,000 people out from behind enemy lines? They, sure, they could have tried to join the French underground and maybe move to Switzerland, but the reality is 13,000 would have been killed or captured. That was it. Their war was over. Um, so to actually see that link up, I just that had to have uh, had to have raised the spirits a little bit, you know? Oh, the whole day. I mean, remember they even had They had a lull between taking the guns in the morning. You know, they just did the jump and they're sort of jaw jacking, shooting the shit in enemy country. But they had the law. I mean, they already got to it. It's already a big feat. They landed. Think how many people didn't get to land just and link up with everybody. And so it's just, by the way, it's just to catch your breath. Sometimes you, sometimes you're lucky enough to catch your breath. Other times you don't. And it's funny to think they even caught their breath. No, they didn't. They're going the whole freaking day. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm sure though, I'm not, wasn't there, but in the moment of it, they were probably relaxing. And it's weird to think about that. Relative, right? Relative. Yeah. Right. Relative. And you look, but you learn your, your mind learns to just forget about that. Go. I mean, it's, it's pretty excellent at just shutting doors and saying it's the past. There's no, there's such little value. In fact, it's negative value. It detracts when you dwell on the past, you learn that. So there's something as the episode nears an end that I was interested in your take on they're cooking some food in the back of a two and a half ton or something like that. Looked like pretty nasty stuff. They're cooking up in an ammo can. Right. And, uh, winters pokes his head in there to check in on the guys. And then he's kind of known as a straight laced dude. Doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. But then with Garnier sitting there, the guy who disobeyed the order right out the gate, he takes a pull from whatever it is they're drinking. Looks it's gotta be some kind of liquor based off of everybody's reaction. Right. Um, What'd you think of that? What's your take on, on that kind of take the drinking piece out of it? I don't mean alcohol or anything like that, but like, yeah. What'd you think of that? And this is from the act, especially because I think they did an excellent job. The way I took that, the way Garnier looked at winters and the way they looked at each other was they, they both recognized what happened earlier in that day. And Garnier said, basically it's not going to happen again. That's how I took it. It was a, uh, I think uh, know your role, but they both knew their roles, right? Because winners has to, you want to keep Garnier's, the pit bulls, you want to keep them. You got to keep them fed. You got, you know, and they got to do their thing. You need guys like that, especially in the environment they're in. But at the same time, Garnier needs guys like Winters too, because Winters is going to protect him too, because a strict rule follower is going to slam guys like Garnier in the brick. You know, I mean, seriously, like, there's this relationship of mutual respect. One is a hard charge in E5, um, NCO, infantryman. And then uh, 
the lieutenant who's supposed to, you know, do the right thing or whatever that may be, and, you know, make those tough decisions or whatever. And I just think that they walked away acknowledging what happened earlier. But then what we're talking about is the past. Move on. It's just day one, one day at a time. I think that kind of thing, I should have put more effort into what to call that. But that kind of thing of trying to create a bond is something that you, by doing something or saying something or acting a certain way that's out of character. Yes. I think you have to be very careful with that. Right. Um, There was a lieutenant that I worked with in, uh, in the army that started, the, the, the thing was he started dipping because his NCOs, the people that were kind of leading the platoon, dipped, chewing tobacco, Copenhagen. And that wasn't something he did, but he started doing that. And the trust was made it or was made a bitter beer face when he did it, probably. Yep. Brought it in my, in my, from my perspective, I think it brought him down. Yeah. That's a I think it was, I think it was giving in. Yeah. So same thing as winters here, same act, right. Doing something with the guys that's out of character. Um, with Winters, I think you're right. I think it elevated. It did something to seal that bond. The past is the past, whatever the, the right way is to say it. But this other circumstance, it wasn't the right time to do it. The relationship, the leader-led relationship wasn't there. And I think it went the other direction. So it's just, you got to be careful with that. That's the art. The science would have said, uh, men, you know, after well, every, the science says the leader will check in with his subordinates and partake in a vice with them so that he can bond. He shall bond. Check that box. Yeah. Because both those things are there, right? But it's just different. It's, it's just different. And it's, and it's, by the way, it's recognizing the human behind every single action and things that's asked. That's a really good point, actually. That's, you said it better than I could have. Um, I think the thing I'll take away from all of that is show your humanity, show that you're a person. Um, it's not, it's not even doing the thing with the soldier or the person. It's, it's show your humanity, your individualness, show that however you might do that, sharing something from home, honestly, like showing pictures of your family, maybe, right? Something to show, Hey, I'm just, we're the same. We're just doing different jobs here. Yeah, no. And make no mistake, by the way, that Winters did that on purpose and it was uncomfortable and he probably didn't want to. It, the, I think the easy answer is to walk by that tent and to ignore what happened with Garnier earlier. Ignore it, not address it, you know, and that creates passive aggressiveness, maybe that uh, lack of communication, any communication that just festers, festers into negativity, into your own brain. And so just root it out, root it out, because like like I, I maybe this is me. I'm a believer. The past just is not helpful. So just root it out because we got the forward. We got the future. To That is what is coming. The episode ends with Winters kind of walking off into the distance, standing by a truck, looking at a city being bombarded. I'm not sure. Um, St. Marie Dumont, maybe. I don't think they actually said which city it was. They, they kind of hinted at some. But anyways, he talked about just wanting to live another day, which when you read the accounts from a lot of these guys, that's kind of the thing, right? Get through, just get through this one and we'll take the next one. Um, but he had a quote that I thought was interesting where he said, if he can make it through this, as in the war, he'd just find a quiet place and spend the rest of his life in peace. 
And I feel like you see that in a lot of accounts throughout history from people when they're at war saying, whether it's when I get through this or if I get through this or whatever it might be, I'm just going to go be by myself or be in a small group and, and live peacefully the rest of my life. And I did not experience a fraction of what these guys did and what winters did, even on that day. Right. But I 100% had that thought when we were deployed, when I get home, when I get out of the army, maybe I'll work a job for a little while, but I just want to go be in the mountains or have a cabin and just be quiet. Um, I don't know that it was the same reason or even close, but that really resonated with me for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I agree with all of that. Slowing down. You just realize the, like that car wreck. I mean, the death, the suffering. I don't like it when people say fair, it's not fair. Life isn't fair. I don't like that F word. And I think, because I think that being around it like that and just seeing none of it's fair, like for anybody, really, the only fair part is we all die. And so it's, it's equal. So it's a, it's a total, it negates all of it out. And what they saw with the young kid, you know, I don't think it's fair. Like, again, I don't like using the word fair, but how unfair is it for someone to die in the, in the airplane? They didn't even get a jump out. Damn it. I hate that. But they didn't even get up, make it onto the ground after all of that training. All of those things, I think, contribute. Not even aside from the fact that a 19-year-old lost his life. To me, the unfairness is he didn't get to land on the ground, you know, and, and, and raise his rifle and shit and start and try to kill Germans. Um, that's why the, the unfairness. And then, then you just realize, what, what the hell? So it's just about slowing down, appreciating what you have. And I'm not even going to say the, the fragility of life. It's just the treasure of it. Like, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting way to end the episode there. Um, he knows what he's getting into, right? I mean, it's, it's day one. They are on the coast of France. They've got a long ways to go. Everybody knows they got a long way to go before the war is over. But to your point, they made it through one. And do you think that was the first prayer or the only prayer he said that whole time? Remember, and I think what the important part about that was, um, really the prayer was just to make it one more day, D-Day plus one, one day at a time. And that's all, that's all you can do in this type of environment. Um, little off track, maybe not, but something I was ranting around about recently, and I think this is a little piece of it, is I have sometimes missed the simplicity of deployments. And I can see that being the case here. Winter's focus is one. Now, I'm not downplaying his focus. He's got a million things in his mind trying to keep his guys alive, but it's one more day. I never wake up here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee and say one more day. And I'm fortunate that I, you know, I'm not in a situation where that's the priority, but there's a calmness to that in a sense of you can just be laser focused on the thing. Um, I think that's something that veterans struggle with probably throughout history 
coming home, you have this simplicity of let's just make it through. Just get to tomorrow. Just get through the patrol. Just get through this mission. Just get through this deployment, whatever it might be. Now you come back and you got 7 million things that are on your mind and you got to worry about. Um, that goes back to the lesson learned to slow down. Let's get some grounding. We all know it. I think that's the maddening part is we all know it. When we get stuck down into the spiral of too busy or the minutiae of whatever the crap that we got to do is. And there's lots of crap that we got to do. Um, but a lot of it maybe doesn't move the needle the way we're used to having a needle move personally. But I, you know, I was just hanging out. The guy, he's a, he was a doctor on my street. I mowed his grass growing up. Like since I was in seventh grade, he was a surgeon in Desert Storm, you know, and I just ran into him. That's 30 years ago. And uh, he was like a, a naval MD with Marine infantry. He was the only naval officer, whatever. Um, in Desert Storm, like the real Desert Storm, not, you know, he did the real, de- the, re- the people that did the real part of it, he was just the real part of it. Um, and he, he, he's just interesting, man. But anyway, I just saw him last time, or last two weeks ago, I haven't seen him for several years, but he's always been a mentor of mine in a way. And um, I've always looked up to him. And he just said, you know, it's just one of those things you'll come to appreciate. Because, you know, I was saying now 10 years, it's 10 years ago, you know, for him, it was 30. It feels like just yesterday, but then it feels like a long time ago at the same time. And you're reflecting all the time. Uh, what does it all mean? And he was saying how it's one of those most important things that you'll ever do that you'll feel like nothing will ever be like that again, but you feel like you'll be able to have it again, if that makes any sense. Like it's this mission that was a fulfilling one, like chasing the dragon in a certain sense. You, you have to live with the acknowledgement that you'll never be that great again or whatever value you want to place on that sort of time frame in your life. The heaviness, that burden is something that will never be replicated, but you always kind of think that you can replicate it in life, but you never will be able to. Yeah. That makes any. Yeah. It, it, we all reflect differently. Um, I think this is a part of it too. You know, I think this is nice. The internet, we live in a day and age where the internet can help. And um, it, even though the, the, the numbers are down from a per capita percentage of population, there's still millions and millions, right. Of veterans in the United States and um, geographically probably not as uh, clustered as it was just by means of we're a few percentage wise, but um, we can all be connected on the internet the way other people couldn't have been in the past too. So it's, you know, it's, um, it's a collective shared experience. I think that we're all adapting to uh, the current times at the same, you know, at the same token. There we go. Well, I got to say before we wrap up um, for anybody who's watching this on YouTube, the Ranger tab on Sayer's shirt is like strangely staying really, really, uh, upright like in one spot and it's kind of uh brighter than everything else it looks photoshopped from here just so you know um it's not oh really so uh (laughs) i was not in ranger regiment it's really popular the video to where like even from here it looks like it's somehow photoshopped in there so um i have to i have to be very clear about the regiment part it's like i have to have a disclaimer nowadays i think get people pissed off but so that'll, uh, I think that'll wrap it up for Day of Days, episode two. 
but we'll be back soon with episode three. It's called Karen Tan. That's next time on Worst. Excellent. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.